Welcome to Peer to Peer, the podcast, brought to you by Rainer. Listen in as we hear from top surgeons having great conversations with their peers about hot and popular topics in ophthalmology. In this episode of Peer to Peer, the podcast, Dr. Ben LaHood from Australia and Ms. Lucia Pellicini from the UK come together to discuss the global management of astigmatism. Dr. Ben LaHood, refractive cataract and laser vision correction surgeon from Australia, has gained international recognition for his extensive research on astigmatism management and biometry, which is regularly shared around the world. Ms. Lucia Pellicini is a consultant ophthalmic surgeon at King's College Hospital NHS Foundation Trust in the UK. Lucia has extensive experience in both corneal-based and lens-based refractive surgery techniques and is an educational and clinical supervisor for junior doctors and fellows of the Royal College of Ophthalmologists in London. Let's dive in. Uh, Welcome to another peer-to-peer podcast brought to you by Rainer. I'm your host, Dr. Ben LaHood. Today, I'm joined by Ms. Lucia Pellicini, consultant ophthalmic surgeon in London, to explore the latest advancements in astigmatism management. Welcome, Ms. Pellicini. Thank you very much for taking the time for this discussion. Uh, How's your day been so far? Uh, Thank you, Ben. Thank you very much. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Um, All going well so far. Looking forward to this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I really love talking to someone that is uh, takes astigmatism seriously. I've seen your presentations and they're great. Um, one of the most common questions I get asked about astigmatism management is, what is your threshold for treatment? Do you, do you have a particular, you know, this is quite a common question that comes up. When do you start thinking seriously about treating astigmatism? Absolutely. Very good point. Um, um... There's a lot of debate of this and there are lots of personal views and I think your choice is influenced by different factors, by the type of lens that you are planning to uh, use and also by um, the environment and the setting where you are and whether you are working um, in the public university sector, if you're working in the private sector, um, there may be some environmental influences that may guide your choices. The higher the astigmatism, the smaller the proportion of uh, patients affected, uh, but the higher is the impact on visual function. So generally, if we're talking about monofocal lenses, um, I would probably take about 1.5 diopter for um, a uh, with the rule astigmatism and maybe 125 diopter against the rule. Uh, But if we are considering premium lenses, EMV lenses or multifocal lenses, probably your cutoff and threshold for treating astigmatism is going to be a bit lower, probably in the order of 0.75 diopters or uh, definitely not higher than one diopter. Uh, And again, the against the rule astigmatism should be considered with a slightly lower threshold for correction compared to the with the rule. Um, I work in a university hospital. And obviously, we are we have guidelines um, that are imposed by the um, department and choices, and the choices are also guided by financial reasons. So, in a public university hospital, the cutoff for treating astigmatism is about two to two point five diopters, um, and obviously, we are using monofocal lenses only only for monofocal platform. It's a, it's quite a high threshold, isn't it? Uh, I think. Um... You know, it's such an artificial 
threshold that no one has really, I, I, I agree with you that the proportion of patients that have that much astigmatism is very low, but you know, those ones that just miss out, it always seems like a real shame that we're swapping cataract poor vision for astigmatic poor vision. Um, but there's, you know, there are costs involved as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I always have a really simple answer to the threshold question where I say, if I can give less predicted residual refractive astigmatism than measured keratometric astigmatism, then I would implant a toric IOL. Uh, would you agree with that in a in a perfect world? Absolutely. The least astigmatism we leave, the better. Everyone benefits from having the astigmatic refractive error corrected. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. We can really debunk the myth that leaving someone with astigmatism gives depth of focus when we have such more elegant solutions these days, like the EMV or trifocal lenses. I think it's really interesting to think about those thresholds and how things are different around the world. Do you have a different uh, threshold imposed on you for using a toric in the private system in the UK? Well, obviously, you know, when you treat patients privately, you want to guarantee the best outcome. Um, so you are, we are not just um, removing cataract because cataract is causing an opacity, but we are doing a refractive procedure. So you want to leave them um, as much as possible glasses free. And we always say, well, at least you get rid of one pair of glasses. Even if you go for a monofocal toric, at least you, we want to make you free completely from your distance or near glasses if you decide to have a myopic outcome. I've heard you speak a, a lot about selecting patients for different lenses, you know, who would be appropriate for a toric or a, a multifocal lens. And I think that's really important. Um, apart from eyes where, just thinking about toric lenses, apart from eyes where they're going to wear a rigid contact lens, um, are there any eyes where you would not implant a toric IOL if there was enough astigmatism to warrant it? Well, obviously, yes, patient selection is very important. It doesn't, if we have access to toric lenses, doesn't mean that everyone with an astigmatism will have a toric lens. Toric implants are implants that should be selected for patients mostly with regular astigmatism without cornea pathology. There are groups of patients with irregular astigmatism that may be suitable for toric. And as you know, we may select uh, keratoconic patients or even patients with small scars, as long as the central cornea presents a regular uh, topographical pattern. And these patients benefit highly from an implant with a toric correction. I've, and I do offer <clears throat> toric implants to keratoconic patients with a central corn and a very regular central cornea. But this is a smaller group and should be um, probably managed by a cornea refractive specialist. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, even irregular corneas do have a regular component. So, you know, there are those eyes that do still do very well. I think the eyes that throw me, that worry me about putting a toric in these days are probably the dry eyes where I think suboptimal biometry, you know, uh, if you took that and planned your treatment, sometimes it can be wildly wrong. Um, and so that's probably been the biggest change to my practice has been adequately treating dry eye preoperatively, making sure biometry is, is very accurate for these eyes uh, to avoid disappointment. Uh, one question that uh, 
I think a lot of people would like your advice about would be around surgically induced astigmatism. Uh, it's a topic that I don't think people understand that well, the difference between the average SIA you'd get over a group of eyes and, and how a, a, an individual cornea might behave to your incision. How do you approach that um, unpredictability with your preoperative calculations? Absolutely, it's it's still a little bit of a gray area, and I don't think we have full knowledge of how to assess um, um, uh, surge-induced astigmatism. There are ways to calculate um, um, our own induced astigmatism based on audit data, and I've definitely done that, and we use that for any or well, every time we order a toric lens. Um, but definitely, it's not a completely reliable uh, measurement. I tend to operate from the temporal axis. And again, this is something, is, is one part of the information that we enter in the toric calculation in any toric platform, the position of the incision and the amount of um, surgically induced astigmatism. But I don't think we, we, we are achieving precision because obviously um, the cornea tissue is different in different patients at different age uh, with different comorbidities. We don't have full control of the surgical use of stigmatism. I, I love that you acknowledge how complex it is because uh, there's another podcast I host called Ophthalmology Against the Rule and we did a three-part series on SIA which was a ratings disaster. Uh, nobody really wants to listen to three episodes on SIA but uh, the, the moral of the story was it's difficult, it's really difficult and so my practical piece of advice is that when you're entering your SIA into a toric calculation, I just enter zero because I think we don't know enough about corneal biomechanics to really predict it on an individual basis. Um, you know, we've spoken a little bit that uh, trifocal lenses, premium lenses are more sensitive to residual astigmatism. There's a little bit of uncertainty around EDOF lenses and whether they would be more or less sensitive to residual astigmatism. What are your thoughts from your experience with using lenses such as the EMV? Yeah, uh, there are different interesting sides to the question because we know that leaving a small amount of astigmatism on a normal eye may have some beneficial effect on the near range of focus, leaving a slightly minus correction that may be uh, uh, derived from the cylinder may have a positive effect on the depth of focus for the patient. We know that patients with, um, when we operate on patients with the rule of stigmatism and we implant a monofocal lens and we leave them a minus 0.75 cylinder, some of these patients surprise us all the time because they come back after surgery and they are extremely happy. Multifocal lenses are very different because these are diffractive lenses. They have the design of multiple rings in the lens. And so the quality of vision may be degraded by the presence of cylindrical uh, refractive error. They may have more glare, they may have more halos, they may have deterioration of contrast sensitivity, but it's just because the design of the lens is completely different. But the EMV may, may actually manage very well with a small amount of negative cylinder. Now with um, planning your your treatments, your toric IOLs, uh, it sounds as though you're very precise. You take the astigmatism very seriously, think about things. What do you do in terms of 
using different curatometry values. So there's a lot of discussion about using total curatometry, um, you know, incorporating the posterior cornea, um, whether you should, for these, some of these more irregular eyes, use values from the Pentacam, for instance, use, um, you know, total corneal refractive power. Um, what, what do you, what is your routine and, and what is your, what do your results indicate is the best uh, method to, to get the best accurate outcomes? Yes, um, definitely. So one thing that we know for sure is that whenever we plan to correct astigmatism, we cannot rely just on one device, on one measurement. The more measurements we have, the better. We want to validate our measurements. We want to validate the amount of cylinder. We want to validate the axis. We need consistencies across different measurements. Um, so we cannot rely on a optical biometry only. And uh, now we are lucky and we have access to tomographical and um, measurements in order to assess the anterior and the posterior cornea. And one or two or more of these tomographical uh, measurements need, need to be um, evaluated next to an optical biometry. And so again, for consistencies of axis, anterior and posterior surface. How do you combine the different values from the different devices? Because sometimes too much information can be a little overwhelming. And when they don't exactly align, it's hard to know which one to use. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we, we need to make sure that we have some sort of agreement between two or three methods. If we have three different measurements, it's probably best to bring the patient on another occasion and measure again, because we cannot guess which one to trust. The optical biometry is reliable as long as we also have the validation of Scheinflug or topographical uh, and tomographical measurements to know that the anterior and posterior surface are regular and they're matching the axis and the amount of cylinder. The main advantage of, of using topography is just to give us the information about the regularity of the cornea. And again, I always um, uh, uh, make sure that my juniors understand that unless we know that the astigmatism is a regular astigmatism, we cannot just rely on the optical biometry. I think that's some really good practical advice. Use the topographer to check regularity and then rely on the op optical biometer. What are, what are your thoughts about, with toric eye wells, the cylinder availability? So the, the Rayner EMV lens, the trifocal toric, starts with a very low cylinder value of 0.75 diopters, uh, whereas previously most lens companies have started at one diopter. Um, do you think that these low values are useful? I think so. As, I, as we mentioned before, I think 0 0.75 when we are planning a multifocal or EMV lens is probably something that you want to have. Obviously, we're talking about very fine refinement of refractive correction. But I think especially for the premium lenses, yes, this is an advantage. For the monofocal lenses, we know that monofocal lenses are much more forgiving and um, a 0.25 cylinder of residual astigmatism probably is not going to be um, affecting the visual function in any significant way. You have some, collected your results with the monofocal Ray 1 toric from Rayner. What do you think? Um, please, you know, obviously this is a Rayner podcast, so people are going to say, oh, you're going to have fantastic results, but I think you're allowed to be as honest as you'd like to be. 
what how are your results Absolutely. I'm very honest. Um, so we just audited um, about 60 patients who received monofocal toric lenses from the Rainer platform. And the results are good. The main result is that we had no return to theatre and no need for rotation or adjustment of the position of the toric IOL. And this is one of the main concerns when people are uh, starting to use toric lenses, the risk of having not a, such an intraoperative complication, but having to return to theatre for an adjustment. So first of all, the Rainer lenses from our audit appear to have an excellent stability. Um, the um, unaided um, visual acuity post-op was uh, better than 0.1 in 90% of patients on LOGMA scale, and the mean preoperative cylinder was uh, 2.8 diopters and went down to 0.5 postoperatively unaided, and, and there were no um, other intraoperative or postoperative problems requiring extra care or extra um, um, uh, extension of treatment. So overall, this yes. lens and the platform, the monofocal toric, is, is, is a very reliable um, lens. I think the design, the loop optic design has advantages because it prevents shrink, shrinkage of the posterior capsule and helps the stability of the lens, rotational stability of the lens. We've That's now started awesome. to use EMV toric lenses and although the numbers are as small so far, but the results are very good. And again, the design and the platform of the EMV toric has a similar haptic design and I think that is very critical for the stability of the lens in the capsular bag. Now, just a final question, and um, I haven't prepared you for this, so I don't know if you have anything off the top of your head, but do you have any favorite tips and tricks that you teach your trainees about toric IOLs that you just feel are absolute pearls of wisdom that you pass on that you think, look, if I can, if I can say anything that should improve your your toric outcomes, this is what I would this is what I would tell you. Absolutely. Well, yeah, we could divide it. Obviously, selecting the patient is one of the most important steps. Many colleagues and juniors ask me to have to be trained to use toric lenses, and actually, the surgery itself is not the main challenge. The main challenge is the preparation, the correct selection and then the ability to deal with postoperative problems. So when we select the patient, we want to make sure the ocular surface, the tear film is good, the patient hasn't used a contact lens and therefore showing a pseudostigmatism or an abnormal cornea shape just because they've been using soft or hard lenses. Um, the centration of the scan, working very closely with technicians, the optometrist in clinic to have reliable measurements is key in planning a toric implant. Um, at the time of the surgery, I would say, you know, the size of the incision, I always, I'm very keen to um, use um, small incisions and not to enlarge the incision um, because it seems to go against what we are doing for the patient if we enlarge the incision for the lens implant. So obviously the incision size and position. The size of the capsule rexis is very important because it affects the stability of the lens. It may cause tilting of the implant or prolapsing of the implant in the anterior chamber. So when I teach the junior, I always, you know, um, 
remind them not to be too generous when they do orexis, if they do a manorexis, if we are implanting a toric lens, we want stability of this lens. Um, and then the removal of the viscoelastic at the end, obviously, you know, some of the lenses, depending on the design of the optic, may be more prone to spinning or movement or rotational movement when we are um, closing the surgery and removing the viscoelastics. So very important to watch at the position of the implant up to the end. And the first few hours postoperatively, the first day and the first few hours, the position of the patient seems to have also a huge impact on the final outcome and rotational stability of the lens. And, and, and then obviously some tips and tricks on how to manage possible problems. We always remind people and colleagues who are starting toric lenses that when the patient comes back to clinic, they need to check the position of the lens. And many, you know, we seem to forget once the lens is there, that's the end of the process. We need to check if the axis is where we want it and whether there is any need for any refinement in the position. Um, and that's also should be part of the consent of the patient. We should tell the patient that this special lens may possibly need a second adjustment, although the risk is very small. That's great. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, my tip is always, if you want to improve your outcomes, you need to know and record your outcomes. Uh, each year at the ESCRS meeting for the past seven years, I've run a Torek IOL course called Planning for Success and Dealing with Failure. And I think the dealing with failure part is the part people are most concerned about. But I think you've summed up all of the tips that I say at that course in about the last two minutes. So people can save two hours and not come to that meeting by listening to this. So thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so, Ms. Palacini, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been a real pleasure discussing astigmatism with you, uh, hearing your results, and I'd encourage everyone to come and, and listen to your talks that are coming up. I hope everyone listening has enjoyed our chat, and uh, I'll be back with our next episode soon. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. In the next episode of Peer to Peer the Podcast, host Dr. Ben LaHood will be joined by Dr. Damien Gatinell to talk about advanced optics. For more information about this episode's topic and to read the show notes, visit the Peer to Peer Hub at rainer.com forward slash peer to peer. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, please subscribe to our channel to be notified of new episodes. This podcast is provided for general information purposes only. The presenter's views are their own. Rayner does not endorse off-label use. Users must refer to the product labelling and instructions for use for Rayner products in all cases. Not all Rayner products are available in all countries. The full disclaimer can be found in the show notes.